The Lord Jesus had entered Jerusalem to the acclamation of the crowds. We saw that last Lord's Day. And they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And by their words, at least, the crowds of thousands upon thousands hailed Jesus as the King, the promised Messiah, the Deliverer, the Saviour. And we saw that it was a scene of of great adulation and excitement and majesty, but there were very tragic undertones. He'd entered Jerusalem, he'd accepted the praise of the people as he had processed through the city and then finally ended at the temple. And after an evening in Bethany with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, no doubt the twelve, the cross drawing ever nearer, the Lord Jesus then returns to Jerusalem and to the temple the next day. And that's where we come to our text this morning in verses 12 through 17. I want to give you some background to what is taking place. And Jerusalem would have been absolutely overflowing with people due to Passover. The city's population was estimated to grow to over four times its usual size. And it was tradition to be in the city to celebrate it. And so the only way to accommodate all the people was to extend the boundary of the city for that season to encompass some of the surrounding areas like Bethany and Bethpage, etc. But everywhere would be full. Inns, homes, rentals, second homes, even the open areas within the walls would suddenly see tents being set up as people would come and camp in the city. One of the places that would be full of pilgrims was the temple. Now, Jewish law meant that no one could actually sleep in the temple, so people would try and camp out as close as they could to the temple. The temple was the the focal point of everything. And all week, pilgrims would be coming just to see it. They would be coming to bring sacrifices and offerings to the Lord to seek cleansing from sin and ceremonial cleansing and purification. And it's in the temple that this incredible incident takes place. And we need to understand this morning not just what happens, but also what it reveals. And we need to understand that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is underlining again the credentials of Jesus Christ. That he is the Messiah, that he is the true king. And this event itself demonstrates that he is king, demonstrates the type of king he is. And also it tells us much about what his kingdom will be like. And so the Lord Jesus, he had been performing these incredible miracles. He taught with unprecedented authority. He had given glimpses to his limitless power. And if you remember, at times the people had wanted to make him king. They thought that they could force him to be king and then he could drive out the Romans and then provide for them all their material wants and needs. But the Savior's mission was very different from that. And we know that on occasions like John 6, he had resisted those attempts of the people to make him king. And as he rode into Jerusalem, the crowd was at fever pitch, yet everything about it declared that this king and his kingdom was different. Remember, when he had entered Jerusalem, he had come on a donkey. He'd not come with great military might. There were no weapons. Even his closest followers were outcasts, were nobodies. All of it said, my kingdom is not like other kingdoms. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. 
There's no pomp, there's no glory, there's no earthly majesty, but even still, the people had aspirations that he would overthrow the Romans and restore Israel to former glories. But here, he comes again to the temple to demonstrate the nature of his kingdom, the type of king that he is. And so I want us just to look over this narrative and to draw out some observations And the first thing I want you to see in verse 12 is this, that he comes with divine purpose. The Lord Jesus never did anything without purpose or that was not in accordance with the work that his father had given him to do. And so it says, verse 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God. That's quite a unique reference, by the way. It's the only place that it appears in the New Testament. The temple of God. And he's going to the place which embodies what he is there to do, what he is in this earth to do. He went to the temple because he was going to highlight what the heart of the problem was. You see, he'd not come to deal with politics. He'd not come to deal with economics or or anything like that. One day, all of those issues he will deal with. And he will establish his own glorious eternal kingdom where those troubles will be gone forever. But his first coming was to save, to bring the spiritual deliverance that we desperately need, to reconcile us to God, to make us true worshipers of God. He is concerned with people's relation to God. That's his focus. Now, at the start of his public ministry in John 2, he had cleansed the temple on that occasion. And again, that was at Passover. And on that occasion, similarly, he had driven out all the the traders from the the temple zeal for the house of God and the holiness of worship. The reverence of God had seen him erupt in righteous anger. And he had driven them out of the temple. And as he started, so now towards the end of his ministry, he's found at the temple zealous for the right worship of God in the beauty of holiness. But you see that the people... You know, they'd forgotten, they'd gone back. They'd not been changed. And he'd seen so much during those years, so much oppression, so much poverty, so much distress, so much injustice, and yet his mission never changes. He had seen so many things that were inconsistent with God's design and will, but his priority was clear. And friends, we need to understand this. It's only when men and women are right with God that there is any hope of them being right with each other. The gospel is key. And he was concerned with the people's relationship with God, with the worship of God. That was the deep concern of his heart. And where does he begin? Where does it always begin? At the house of God. 1 Peter 4, 17. Judgment must begin at the house of God. Because whilst things were wrong there, everything else would be wrong. As one explains, the measure of any society is the relation it has to God. Worship is the issue. You read that in Romans 1 and you can see the way that that is explained. You know, you can come up with all manner of reasons why society is in a mess. Many people do. But the problem is that they have rebelled against God, turned away from God, don't want God. That is the issue. And you know, there's lots of pressure today, isn't there, to address all the the different issues in society. And friends, we must be a people, above all, of compassion for those in difficulty. 
But our priority, like the Lord Jesus, like Peter, is that judgment must begin at the house of God. The spiritual problem has to be dealt with first. And so here, Jesus comes to cleanse the temple. And friend, the great need of our land at this time is that the church be cleansed. Do you know, you can't read this without feeling that prayer rise in your heart. Oh Lord, sweep through the churches. Bring them back to the truth of your word that it reforms its ways according to the word of God. You know, I read even last night, there was an appalling thing where in one church, somebody came to deliver a lecture to the people at Evensong that Jesus was transgendered. And you think the disgrace and blasphemy of it. Oh Lord, cleanse the churches. And what did the Lord Jesus find when he came to the temple? Well, he cleansed it once. The people had gone back to their sinful ways. So why does he come to do it again? Because he is zealous for the holiness of God. You know, he wants to vindicate the holiness of God. That the people would see the holiness of God. And it demonstrates his vengeance against sin, against blasphemy, and against all false religion. You know, when Jesus had cleansed the people and the temple the first time, there wasn't that lasting change. There wasn't that great revival or reform. Three years had passed, and if anything, it had got worse. But it doesn't mean that he can just leave it or sweep it away. The Messiah comes to demonstrate how the holy God feels about sin and blasphemy and false religion, how his anger burns against sin. And those who disregard his holiness. You know, you read through the Old Testament and you see the times that God sent prophets to call the people of Israel back from idolatry. And often there was a a short-term response, but then there was a descent into even worse idolatry. Yet he kept sending those messengers because his glory was at stake. He must always speak truth. And he must reveal himself as as holy, and how he hates sin. And so now the perfect prophet, the ultimate messenger, Jesus Christ, comes to the temple to demonstrate how God sees the evils of what is happening. Now, friend, to help you understand what the image is, I want to describe for you a a moment the temple itself. And so when you came to the temple, you would first face the outer wall with great columns all around the temple precinct. And then you go through the main opening into the the court of the Gentiles, which was, as by name, open to all types of people. Even Gentiles could go in there. And once inside there, there was another gate called the Gate Beautiful. And that provided the entrance into another court called the Court of the Women. And that was only where Jewish uh, Jewish men and women could go. And if a Gentile stepped into that place, they would lose their life. In fact, the Romans have permitted the temple authorities to do that and enforce that if necessary. And so then in the court of the women, you would have the trumpet-shaped receptacles for monetary offerings for reasons of cleansing, etc. And then from that court, there would be another gate called the Nicanor Gate. And it was a massive bronze gate which would take about 20 men to open it up because it was so huge to open or close it. And through there would be the court of the Israelites. And that would be where the Jewish men could go to prepare their offerings. And then they would take those offerings to the next court, which would be the court of the priests. 
And in there was the altar for the burnt offering. And so they could look through into that court and they could see as the, the offering was given to the priests and then watch as it was offered. But from the court of the priests, there was another smaller door which led to a further place at the back of which was the Holy of Holies. And that was with the Ark of the Covenant separated by the veil. And as many of you will know, the high priest could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what is interesting is this, the outer parts of the temple were at a lower level. And so each part ascended to the Holy of Holies, which was crowning Mount Moriah. And so there would be a sequence of steps leading from one court to the next. Now at that time, the court of the Gentiles, that first sort of outer court was known as the Bazaar of Annas. And it was named after a corrupt priest who had introduced the selling of concessions as a way to get himself rich and to get power. And so he had sold off parts of the court of the Gentiles for traders to come and sell sacrifices or for money exchanges. And really the whole thing was a way to exploit the people because every offering had to be approved by the priests. And so any sacrifice that was brought from anywhere else would instantly be rejected. So for example, if you had raised a lamb yourself and you brought it with you, it would be rejected, but you could buy an approved one at 10 times the price from the court of the Gentiles. If you couldn't afford a lamb, then there would be uh, birds, doves, pigeons available in accordance with the Levitical law, but they would have been priced to exploit and then, of course, if you come from a different place and you didn't have the right currency to use in the temple, well, then you'd be charged to exchange your money for the right money. So the whole thing was corrupt. And traders, priests were working together to get rich and all in the name of apparent religion. And the Lord Jesus walks in and he is assaulted by the sight of this, the sounds of crying animals being slaughtered, the stench of this stockyard. The chaos and the offense all in the house of God, it is a horrifying scene, but sadly not unfamiliar to him. And the Holy King has come to deal with the spiritual issue and to throw out corrupt worship and to bring in true worship. And so he comes with that divine purpose. But then I want you to see divine authority. You see, the temple was in many ways where the power truly was. The high priests and other temple officials, they had real authority within those walls. But friends, all their earthly authority was nothing in comparison with the authority of the Son of God. Look at verse 12. Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And we see here, in part, the fulfillment of the passage we read in Malachi. He is the Holy King. And in that prophecy made around 500 years before Jesus came, you see, the Jewish people had expected Messiah to come and purify the temple, purify the people. And Malachi speaks of how God's messenger will restore the worship life of the people of God and purify the priests. But once again, Jesus fulfills these expectations in a way that people would never have considered. And the Savior moves in judgment. And just imagine amidst all the thousands of people, 
And you had all the money grabbers wanting to hold on to the wealth and status. You had the priests who didn't want to be shamed before the people. None of them want their power challenged. None of them would have thought it was possible, particularly not at the hands of this man from Nazareth. But the scriptures say that he threw them out, that he overturned the tables of money and the money changers with all their coins piled up on their tables and he flips them over and you can imagine them scrambling to try and retrieve some of that money as they scurried away. And he kicks over the crates, releasing all the birds and those traders in shock as all their merchandise is suddenly released. He clears the place out. Can you imagine The Lord Jesus reveals some of his divine authority in both his words and his actions, and none could stop him. Just imagine the authority and power on display as he casts out this corruption from the house of God. Mark 11, 16 adds another detail. Apparently, the people have been using the temple as a shortcut through the city because there was a way of access. And so instead of having to go all the way around, you could cut through the eastern gate. And instead of going around, they used to use the general courtyard, just like any other street, and and wander through. The Lord Jesus stops all that. You know, to have that impact on thousands means that they are fearful of the amazing power and authority on display. People ran You know, he came as one meek and lowly. He would humble himself to death, even the death of the cross. Yet at the same time, he gives this amazing demonstration of why he came to deliver men from false religion to the truth. Zeal for the house of God, the cleaning up, the corruption of the worship. His anger was holy wrath. And if ever a man had a right to be angry, it was him. Because he was witnessing the desecration of his father's house. And in that moment, in the aftermath, as he had had got rid and swept through, the place, in that sense, was clean. The corruption was removed. He had swept through it all. And even still, the chief priests and the others, they were blind to his authority. They were outraged that he had done this. But friends, you know, it makes us see our own need for such a sweeping through the church. The money changers are still with us. It's true at the time of the Reformation too, Luther had to face them then, those who were using religion to make their money. And you know, we have them today, those in the name of Christ who try to exploit people for their own material benefit and dress it in spiritual terms. And we need to cry out for God to cleanse today, just as he did then. And I want you to see too that not only is this divine authority there, but there is a commitment to the word of God on the Lord Jesus' part. Verse 13, the Lord Jesus always acted consistently with the word of God. And he vindicates and explains what he does by quoting Isaiah in verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's interesting. Matthew, of course, is writing primarily to Jews. So he leaves out the reference that, in fact, it shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah and Mark include that part. But here we see that those who claim to be God's people were, in fact, preventing the nations from praying and worshiping the Lord. They were hindering the people. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? We don't want to be those who hinder people from coming 
to know the law. But Jesus is always in line with the word of God, always glorifying his father, always obedient, and he vindicates his anger by basing it on the word of God. And God had declared that his house was to be a house of prayer, a place of worship and devotion and truth and reverence and praise and confession and contemplation, a place where people met with God and sought God and cried out to God and encountered the Lord, not a place for corrupt business and worldly endeavors. It's a challenge because in a day when we're bombarded with commercialism and materialism, Friends, we can get caught up with so much stuff. We mustn't neglect to commune with God through Jesus the King. It's a house of prayer. God's people ought to come to God's house for for worship, for edification, for instruction, and to pray. You know, when Solomon dedicated this temple, he prayed, O God, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there that you may hear the prayer, that you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Psalm 27, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It was meant to be a place where they could see the beauty of holiness, to seek the Lord, to inquire of the Lord, and it had been turned into a place of blasphemy. Jesus also quotes Jeremiah 7 when he said they had made it a a den of thieves, a a cave of robbers. It's interesting when you read Jeremiah 7, God had disciplined the people for offering ritual sacrifices and yet living in total disobedience to him. The Lord Jesus faced the same situation. Sacrifices were being offered, but there wasn't any true worship or obedience. That's such a challenge to us as well. We might go through the right motions, but what about the state of our hearts? And instead of being a place for true worship, it had been made a place where thieves could operate and were in fact protected to operate in that way. And the Lord Jesus says they provided a cave for robbers. As one explains, this hideout for criminals against God needed to be restored to a house of prayer for God. Jesus does not deal with sin lightly, but in righteous anger. All in accordance with the scriptures. He swept through the temple. But then, something beautiful happens. I want you to look in verse 14 and see divine compassion. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Just imagine that scene. The Son of God has swept through in righteous anger, and he is standing there, the Son of God, and emerging through all of the the dust and the debris, as it were, are the blind and the lame. And they're coming to him. And they're coming to him in great need. You see, they'd always been around the temple. They thought that that was where God was and where the people were, and They needed to beg from the people. But it is incredible that even though many had run because of the wrath of the Lord, yet these ones in need feel able to come to him. Always the Lord Jesus demonstrates this perfect balance of holy vengeance and yet wonderful compassion. 
And those who were guilty, they saw his anger, but those who are true seekers, they see his compassion. And so he stands in the temple and they come to him. It's so wonderful. He has this amazing compassion on those in desperate need. He's the holy king. The king, not only over nations and religious leaders, but also over disease. Friends, it's so wonderful. It's no coincidence that when heaven is described in Revelation 21, the picture is very temple-like. And there in the presence of Jesus and the worship of God, there is no sickness, there is no disease, there is no hurt, there is no pain. And so in this scene, you have the, the foreshadowing, as it were, of what it will be in that final day. You know, the Pharisees, they didn't care about the people. They didn't care about the blind and the lame. They just wanted to exploit and get money, get rich from anyone they could. They abused the poor. They despised the outcasts and the needy. But not the Lord Jesus, full of compassion. And he healed not just to show his power, but to demonstrate that God is a God of great compassion. And so you've got this beautiful balance the Lord Jesus, we know he's going to come to this world in great and devastating eternal judgment. We know that he holds in his hand the keys to hell and death. He's the judge. He's been given judgment by the Father. He controls the eternal destiny of every soul. He has the right to send men and women to hell forever. He can breathe out any judgment he wants any time. And yet by his wonderful grace, if we have been brought to know him, we can come in absolute trust and confidence and love knowing that he loves us and that he has compassion upon us. There's this wonderful balance, divine authority and holiness and yet merciful compassion. He heals them. And in that scene, there is that true worship, God meeting with the poor and the needy and the broken to the glory of his name. And then verse 14, see the power on display. He heals them all, whatever their condition, immediately, totally. All their lives transformed by his devouring power. And no doubt news would have spread through the city of what had happened. And verse 15, even the chief priests, they saw the wonderful things that he did. That phrase means literally they saw the marvels. They saw the miracles. They saw the amazing wonders that only God could do. Do you know, only God could create new eyes. Only God could create new limbs from nothing. New eardrums where none existed. Only God could do that. And this demonstrated the person of Jesus. And they see it. And what happens? Their anger rises to the surface. They had no compassion, no concern for all these people in need. They were cold. They were hard-hearted. They were selfish. And they're so intimidated by the Lord Jesus that they are filled with rage. They want him dead. They would not say. They could not say the truth in front of them. This was Messiah, but they didn't want him. They hated the way that he said they were sinners. They hated that he had dismantled the self-styled religion. They hated that he preached that they were in need of something that they didn't have and that they couldn't earn on their own. And when confronted with this king who is holy, they harden themselves against him. And they don't realize that in doing that, they embrace their own condemnation forever. 
But the last thing I want you to see this morning is divine worship. You know, the last thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ accepts this worship. Look at verse 15. The children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, in the original, children actually means the young boys who would have been old enough to go to the Passover. And so these young boys, they're around and they see what's happened. They see the healing and they start to cry out, Hosanna. You see, they understood. They got the message. The leaders of Israel, the religious experts, they didn't. They wouldn't recognize him. But these youngsters, they saw it because the evidence was overwhelming. They'd seen this incredible display of power. They'd seen the authority of Jesus in cleansing the temple, the compassionate power of Jesus to heal. And for them, it's obvious. And so they start to cry out in worship. And the idea is that they just repeat this praise over and over. They carry on shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David at the top of their voices. They're moved to worship the king. The chief priests are furious. They couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe what they were hearing. And so they even call it out as blasphemy. That's the irony. They had corrupted the temple, they had cheated, they had lied to make their money, and yet they will not have any worship of God's deliverer. That was the blasphemy. They're against true worship. The worship of God in true form was banned. And they even asked Jesus, are you going to allow this? Are you going to allow this to happen? And Jesus says in verse 16, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? He'd not received praise from those who are meant to be the religious, and so he receives it from the unlikely. And in his response, the Lord uses Psalm 8 and gives further biblical reasons why he allowed this worship, and it states his deity and says that even infants, tiny ones, praise God. He alludes to the psalm to give this illustration. And for simplicity, what he is saying is this, if God won't be praised out of the mouths of the mature, he'll be praised out of the mouths of the immature. God will have his son worship. Do you remember in Luke 19, Jesus said that worship would come to him if even the stones had to cry out. Christ is to be praised. And God sees to it, and this is so amazing, God sees to it that on this occasion as he stands there in the temple, God sees to it that his son is worshipped. And if he has to use children to do it, he will. Those who should have been worshipping Christ were not despite all the evidence, so God made sure his son is worshipped and even these young boys could see it. You know, when Jesus came to the temple, he was saying that truly knowing God, that true worship could only be found in and through him. And if we believe in him, we pass from death to life and become citizens of his kingdom. But if we won't have him, then we will only face devastation now and forever. You mark those words in verse 17. Then he left them. Then he left them and went out. There was a sobering word. You see, it's much more than just a physical departure. It is significant spiritually. 
Because even the very next day, they'll come to him and they'll ask him by what authority he did those things. What does he say to them? Look at verse 27. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, I've got nothing more to say to you. That is a tragedy. Friend, it may be that you have heard the gospel many, many, many times. That you've been confronted with the Lord Jesus as Savior. That you have heard of his mission that he came to accomplish to save sinners, to bring them back to God, and to make them true worshipers. You have heard it again this morning. You've been confronted with his divine authority, with his compassion, with his power, that he is who he says he is. It is all before you. That he is the one who is worthy of our worship. But now the challenge is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you come to him for mercy? Will you come to him for forgiveness, for deliverance? Will you bow before the King of Kings in worship and submission? Because sinners, Jesus will receive. And if you come to him and turn to him, he will save you. He will save you and you will know his amazing grace and his love and his compassion both now and forever. Or will you be like those hard-hearted religious leaders who were enraged when faced with Jesus? because he exposed the reality of their hearts. He made claims on their life that they did not want. He confronted their sin, and they hated him for it. There are still people like that today. You set before them the holy king, and they hate him. They'll spit on him. They will not have him. And one day, they will face his wrath and his judgment. There's no middle ground. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. You either worship him or reject him now. You will bow the knee one day, but you'll face those eternal consequences. I pray that you will see that this Jesus is God's king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only deliverer, that he is the only one who can reconcile us to God and make us true worshipers, worshipers who will delight in the glory of forever. It's a wonderful thing. This Jesus really is the Savior. May we know him as such. Amen.